0: this is the ai challenge that we are confronted with we have to acknowledge there's liabilities but let's not miss what's really happening here something that's quite extraordinary and unique in our time and and it's just the beginning Google releases Bart, posing its competitor AI in the race to a AI. AI, AI value value value. How can yeah. AI treat mental illness?
1: Hi, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure for me to be here today to interview Dr. Eric Topol, who's a cardiologist, uh, one of the world's leading experts on AI and medicine, um, a researcher and just a prolific author as well. Um, Dr. Topol, thank you so much for your time and joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you, Alison. It's great to be with you.
1: i'm I'm sure you are out the door busy given the the time it is for ai right now and all of the potential benefits that um in in medicine but before we jump into that i realized after having read a couple of your books and you know loads of your papers it occurred to me that i don't really know how you ended up being like you're a cardiologist right but how you also ended up being one of the world's foremost Thought leaders in in the role of AI in medicine, what are the what was the journey for you? Were there like key moments that that you can recall that sort of fed into that perspective? Because it's really a unique perspective, and we're so lucky to have it in the field.
0: You know I think it was a natural progression for me. Uh, I've always tried to think of where the puck's going or where medicine's headed, and so. You know, back in the late 90s, it was clear that we were starting to accumulate a lot of data. Uh, that's when genomics was really taking off. And then we started the sequencing. And then the sensors really uh, were clicking. A smartphone connected to the Internet and in 07 with the iPhone. And it was becoming clear that Uh, the problem with data was analytics, and the solution was going to be AI. So that's where I had to kind of go into autodidactic mode, because I'm not a computer scientist, but I had to hang out with a lot of great ones, uh, like some people you work with, um, and many others. So that that's kind of how I got into it. And it's so exciting, I have to say, uh, as an old dog in in medicine, there's no time I can remember that's as exciting as what we're seeing right now with these foundation large language models and how they are inevitably going to transform medicine.
1: Let's jump in about um, into the sort of uh, yeah the large language models and. Um, I know that you've written a lot recently on, on the opportunities for medicine. Could you, could you speak to some of that? Like, do you see additional, uh, you know, opportunities now based on specifically LLMs?
0: Yes. Um, I think what's happened now with these large language or foundation models, generative AI, whatever you want to call it is, uh, we we've gone from this narrow AI, unimodal where basically, you know, the, the charge was just help me with one type of data. Um, and now we are into multimodal, particularly with the, the GPT-4, uh, which has really been the first one to cross that line. Uh, now it's text and images. Um, and soon, uh, we'll, you know, even go beyond that, of course, as these evolve. So no one in medicine Has been able to integrate and process all these layers of data in a given individual no less in a population so uh, to be able to have models that will do that uh, and do it you know accurately and meaningfully that's what uh, has been holding us up so there's so many things out of this multimodal ai like a virtual health coach that looks holistically you know not just at one thing so you know for example in mental health what about the interactions with your sleep, and your physical activity, you have to take data from multiple sources. And in real time, you know, being able to um, really extract the meaning of that data and reflect it back so this is exciting because um, we didn't really have a way to do that and now we haven't done it yet in medicine but um, of course we're on the cusp of being able to.
1: I think some of the focus has also been on the quality of the data I think we've come back I think you know yeah 10 years ago everybody we were all very excited about the potential of big data and then realized it was like a lot of big noise as well. Um, (laughs) I noticed that recently in, in a piece in Nature Medicine you spoke about the sort of the need for annotated, like really well annotated data sets according to phenotype and so on. Could you speak to like overall in terms of um, kind of data quality and, you know, the potential that data itself has to unlock some of these problems that we have in medicine, where, where do you feel, how are you on that sort of spectrum of, of optimistic disillusioned?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, this is a great question you're asking. Uh, I think what we have to now uh, agree is that each of us uh, is defined by many layers of data, or at least partly defined. Uh, And so this multimodal or multilayered uh, data that defines our uniqueness. It's not only you know, what is captured in various medical encounters with electronic health records, which is just only a small part of what is about us. It's also Things like our genome and our microbiome and our all these other biologic layers, uh, and then our physiome through sensors, our anatome through scans and uh, environmental, uh, uh, you know, our immunome, our you know socioeconomic um, so level. So some of those are really uh, high fidelity data, like the genome now is really gotten complete and you know highly accurate. Uh, and even the gut microbiome uh, sensors have gotten better and better, but some are still somewhat shaky. Uh, our electronic records are not—you uh, know, there's many sources. People move, and the records are cut and pasted largely. 80% of what's in them, lots of errors. So it depends on which layer you're talking about. But overall, the trend is to higher fidelity of of the data and um you know the charge here is about inputs you're getting at if the inputs are compromised if they're incomplete uh then the outputs with ai are going to follow suit and uh that's the problem
1: the garbage in garbage out principle basically yeah i love that i mean you're speaking to so much that is meaningful for us as well like the the basically context but you're speaking to it in this like multi-dimensional way we tend to think about data captured in the context of everyday living, which of course is so, and the lived experience, which is so important for behavioral health and mental health because of course it's that everyday lived experience that in which the problems arise.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned that because I kind of think of, you know, the mental health story as part of our physio, you know, that is we have sensors that can help, um, objectively capture metrics. We're not using them nearly as much as I hope we will in the future to help uh, with subjective uh, things, and you know I think that will be another part of um, the accuracy of data or the completeness of data as we move forward.
1: I love the phrase that you coined of um, keyboard liberation, <laughs> and I think this is the thing: if we can deliver true value to the physician and to the clinical relationship, like that's what I'm really interested in as well. Um, uh do you see that do you see the potential for that in terms of like clinician tooling apart from just sort of raw kind of insight delivery or information delivery what other kind of use cases have been knocking around in, in your head
0: well the the one that i think uh clinicians uh will find uh all of a sudden the the endearment embracement uh as a keyboard liberation because over the years uh since the introduction of electronic records, uh, we were transformed to data clerks. And this is really tied into the burnout, disenchantment and depression that's pretty widespread among clinicians. So to be able to remedy that where their keyboard use would be de minimis. So the idea is that you would have uh, now being tested in 2000 doctors at the University of Kansas, they're all done through voice, uh, whether that's the actual clinic note, whether that's discharge summaries, whether that's operative procedure notes, and on and on. So there's lots of, this is a pluripotent story. But the immediate uh, kind of fantasy is that the clinicians would no longer be data clerks. And we're, of course, just at the starting gate. But it looks like this is going to be a winner. Now, it still means humans in the loop. You have to review these notes. Uh, but the the point is, then you can say, I want the note to be in the language and the literacy level of my patient, and I want the note to then lead to nudges to the patient, you know, every x amount of days about the this or that, and you basically can use this this format to do things that we can't do. So uh, it goes even beyond just this kind of magical transcription level. It goes to. Uh, you know, getting rid of having to say, "I want to make the appointment such date," out the prescriptions, the coding, all these functions are just taken away from the uh, the, the menial task of clinicians. Right.
1: The pre auth. You know, the, the idea yeah. that just because the way you write a, a letter for the insurance company can affect whether your patient has to pay out of pocket for care or not. I mean, it's, there's so many, many, yeah, there's so many potential use cases, I think. In The the Patient Will See You Now, um, one of my favorite books, how does this fit with, or like, I know it's very early to say, right? So this is all kind of, um, <laughs> we're brainstorming at this point, but do you see immediate use cases or ways in which um, this maps on to the concept of the empowered patient?
0: Sure, because we tend to just think about large language models helping clinicians, but uh, in this democratization that we're moving further and further along with, uh, the patients are benefiting, are going to benefit uh, equally or more. And the reason for that is, in fact, in this new book uh, by Peter Lee and colleagues uh, about GPT-4, there's a whole chapter about the empowered patient with the large language models. And that's I I really thought that was important because uh, the idea that you could do so much as a patient when you have this type of uh, ability to prompt. So like just today, there was a paper published about Uh, patients asking about breast cancer screening advice, which is obviously a very complicated topic. And this is the first go. But, you know, they asked 25 questions. um, uh, This is the University of Maryland, and they were 88% correct, and only one was inappropriate. And so, you know, to be able to have, instead of having to turn to the doctor, to be able to get some preliminary advice and uh, put your data—not just you know a Google search, which tells you about you know the general population—but here's my data, uh, you know GPT X. Now what do I do? And so there's going to be a lot of this. Of course, this is why we need the regulatory uh, oversight because it has to work well. If it gives bad recommendations, that could be dangerous.
1: Right. And I, I feel, and I've written about this too, I just, I feel like one of those dangers is undermining the public confidence because of one or two sort of ill informed design decisions that, you know, a couple of players have done. So
0: I come back to, you know, yeah, we have to acknowledge there's liabilities but let's not miss what's really happening here. Something that's quite extraordinary and unique in our time. And, and it's just the beginning. I think most people, you know, I recently wrote a piece about GPT-X, just because you know, we went from ChatGPT in November 30th to GPT-4 released March 14th. You know, right. this is extraordinary. It's so hyper accelerated. Does Moore's law and even
1: it, if, even apply anymore? I think we've ever, we're have well, so beyond Moore's law at this point.
0: Yeah, this this is a new law. This is like, yeah. you know, it, it, that was uh, every 18 months. This is like something happened every few weeks. No, this is crazy stuff. Uh, but it just means it's going to get better and we're going to start to weed out the hallucinatory behavior to some extent and never get perfect. And there's still the amplification of bias and lack of fairness and privacy issues that take to another level, of course. So, you know, this is the AI uh, ca- challenge that we are confronted. Just remarkable data ability to analyze process data, but acknowledging that we don't wanna ri- rely ever on machines a hundred percent.
1: What I'm hearing is very much like this is a tool and, It's going to have limitations, it's going to have benefits, but actually it's a very powerful tool that we owe it to ourselves, the world and, you know, the potential benefit in industry to really lean into to the benefit and maximize those. So as a tech optimist, do you see any places where you think that we should not tread with this with LLM technology or AI more broadly?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, I think there are concerns that are very legitimate about, um, you know, the idea that we could make misinformation, disinformation in general much worse. Uh, and all the you know, kind of whatever we thought about deep fakes and, um, and GANs, we could take to a whole new order of uh, how. So I think. This is a big problem. Is the, the we've already seen, particularly in the last few years with the pandemic, the blurring of truth and uh, you know, fact-free, uh, and and a, a movement towards uh, mis and disinformation. And my biggest worry is that uh, we could see that at a, another a new scale. Uh, you know, where um, we've already seen the beginnings of that. The, the large language models misused. Uh, and I'm worried about that, how it could certainly make things considerably worse. And it's not we're not in a good state right now um, about right. that. Yeah. And, and that's to me yeah. perhaps the number one concern about how this could go um, in downside.
1: I was recently sent, uh, somebody sent me a, a message that was a screenshot of the front cover of the daily mail from it was actually from like 1995 or something pretty late into the nineties that said it's official. The internet is a fad. <laughs> and like, <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think it's really interesting. I think the way people talk about AI now is the way that people talked about the internet in the nineties. It's the best thing ever. It's, you know, it's so dangerous. And and in fact, it's been a tool that has been both of those things. What do you think, um, the media is getting right about LLN's like how do you how do you see that conversation unfolding? Has it been helpful, balanced, unhelpful?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because uh there's some that are feeding the pure hype and some that are, you know, feeding this, you know, six month moratorium which is never gonna happen and, you know, taking a very harsh stance. You don't hear, okay, here's how we're gonna take this across the goal line. And that's where we should be putting our efforts, not just, you know, coming up with the design, but also, you know, executing the work, because that's the missing link right now. We got something so powerful, so pluripotent, but you have to prove it. On the clinician side, it has to be very compelling, because a lot of physicians and and nurses and pharmacists and all the professionals, they're very leery about this stuff not just because they think it's a job threat, which I think most hopefully realize it's not a job threat, but more that, you know, the harm potential is there. So we have to have compelling evidence that can come from randomized trials, it can come from really well done rigorous prospective work. But that's what's needed now is to even whatever tool we have to work with, get that compelling evidence base out there so that people start to get comfort in becoming, uh, you know, a new standard of care.
1: Yeah, that's right. I've, I, we found we did a survey a few years ago, just sort of testing the general population, the general public's acceptance of kind of digital therapeutics and the field in general. And and we found that people are actually very discerning. So they are d- definitely optimistic and eager to adopt these tools if there is the evidence to support them. And I think that's a very good thing. Because again, I, re- I do worry about the undermining of public confidence where, you know, if you have, where you have a lack of regulation actually, and, and it creates, a, and you also have a great need, it creates a big vacuum that gets filled with some, in some cases, just a lot of noise. And um, everybody's the same claims, everybody's saying the same thing. And over time, in the absence of data, it's, it, it risks undermining confidence.
0: And your point is is a really important one because if we have a fiasco, because of right. premature adoption or whatever, uh, it could really hurt the field. It could hurt the progress. You know, it, it it could get stigmatized. So that's why. That's right. Hopefully, we all work together to you know usher this in properly.
1: And you mentioned in your in your nature medicine piece, you had a sort of call to action for technologists and clinicians to come together. And to partner, which is something I really believe in as well. Like I think, as a, you know, as clinicians, we also can't just bury our head in the sand. And also, you want to be at the table with the clinicians developing the technologies. Are there folks that you see doing this well right now?
0: Well, it's just so happening so quickly. Um, no, I think a lot of a lot of groups are are trying to, you know, get first mover advantage. Um, you know, we have a paper in Nature about foundation models in medicine, and we like to think that we're you know, coming up with really good ideas. Uh, the group at Harvard led by Zach is certainly, you know, one of the leading groups in the US. But there's other groups like uh, Pierce Keene and his colleagues at Moorfields in the UK, uh, which are doing some amazing things, uh, starting with the retina, but also widening that out to the whole body the gateway. And that's a that's a an, a good example of this um, whole idea of foundation models uh, based on you know you start with one the the, the retinal photo and then you, you basically start to expand uh, understanding a, a, a person and their risk for various conditions so um, I think what we're what we're seeing is you know gr- different groups around the world those are just a few uh, that are really um, very thoughtful. Uh, that are waiting to take these tools, which uh, as, you know, as you've as you already uh, pointed out, um, are just going to keep getting better, to apply them to prove that uh, this is truly transformative, which I believe uh, if there ever was something that fulfilled that descriptor, this is it.
1: The, there's doing the work and then there's helping people more broadly understand the work in, in the appropriate context. Um, and I mean, I think You've actually done an incredibly amazing job at that with, through your writing. Actually, a burning question I have is how you have any time for anything else, but that's, we can leave that to the end of the interview.
0: So we have to find the ways to get to people that they are receptive and eager to learn. But we also equally, we just can't be talking in an abstract about excitement. Right. We have to actually, you know, in data, in in, in evidence we trust and that I think once we have that, then I think we'll get uh, a lot more receptors open uh, to, to buy into it.
1: How important is explainability do you feel like in medicine or, or you know, does, it, does yeah. it depend on intended use or what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, this has uh, been a highly contested topic, uh, as you well know, Ali. And I, I tend to side a bit more with the computer scientists uh, here. A lot of things in medicine, we have no idea how they work. I mean, like electroconvulsive therapy for very severe depression, who knows how that works, but we use it and we use anesthesia for, we have no idea how these agents actually work and lots of things in medicine. So how can we hold machines to a different standard um, if the validation is really solid, compelling, uh, and even if we can't fully explain it? Now, at the same time, we're getting much better to deconstruct models, you know, reverse engineer to find out you know the saliency maps and the features that drive their success or their accuracy. So I think we're going to get to a, a kind of a steady state where hopefully we'll get validation and we'll also get some explainability. But this also carries through to the large language models because you know some people are saying, well, is this really artificial general intelligence? Well, it doesn't really matter what it is if it's working. If it, it yeah, helps right, we'll take right, it. We'll take it. right. Yeah.
1: Given that perspective, I wonder. Like, how, I know you mentioned it earlier. What do you think about the, the this letter that was written to sort of say we should pause for for six months? And and similarly, I'm thinking about the. I think the Italian government has implemented a ban.
0: This is really crazy stuff because um, we're well, not going to have any ban. It's not going to happen. And uh, this is a race now uh, that's, you know, got enormous commercial interests, Uh, not just the tech titans between Microsoft and Google, but far bigger than that. And it's also, uh, you know, the fact that it has so much benefit uh, that's incubating, we don't want to suppress that. But we do need to figure out ways to uh, authenticate uh, that. That is, when you have you know the Pope wearing some uh, down jacket, uh, and you know that's not right. There should be an immediate, an immediate signal that this is fake, uh, and uh, we you know we, we haven't done that yet. That is to basically use AI to determine the whether something's genuine, uh, and that's something we have to work on. But you no, know, this it's really uh, the idea that we could somehow put this on ice for. Six months or a year indefinitely—it's absurd. It's never going to happen. So you know, it might—it might sound good to certain people that are worried, and I'm worried too. You know, when you say optimist, it doesn't mean that you have—you um, know—blind eye towards where it go wrong, right? And so um, I'm hoping that um, we'll have effort to use. You know, the, the funny thing about AI scientists is they think that every problem with AI solution uses AI, but it doesn't necessarily <laughs> true. But maybe here, that is, uh, what's genuine, what is yes. actually done properly, what is uh, basically fabricated. We've got to have a handle on that.
1: I absolutely agree. And it was really interesting in the pandemic. One of the lessons for me, at least, was how quickly things can change if you have political will. Um, you know. So, what is the role of government here? Is it? Is it? Is it regulation?
0: We don't prevent the uh, progress. But well, we have guardrails, um, and I think that coming up with that right balance, we haven't done that yet. And even with AI being narrow and unimodal, we still haven't figured out how to uh, exploit the autodidactic function. You know, the algorithms yes. were frozen the day they get approved. If you could let them loose and just keep getting better and better, but the way we've handled, you know, unimodal. Uh, AI, like, for example, radiology scans, it's really hurt the power. We've diminished the the remarkable power. So we haven't yet found that balance, uh, Ali. That is, we we haven't figured out how to do it.
1: Eroding the model over time ultimately is is, is not in patients' best interest. So, Eric, you must have a front seat here. What's going on? Why haven't we been able to figure out how to regulate (laughs) sensibly? Well,
0: yeah, this is it gives me fits just because um, we haven't really yet figured out how to derive maximal benefit you know, and, and minimize risk. I'm hoping that mm-hmm. the lessons we've learned so far with largely images, which has been the sweet spot for for medicine yeah. now for you know the last few years, that um, that the shortcomings will not repeat itself, that we we will take advantage of that the more uh, data that goes into models, the more tokens, uh, the better parameters. And uh, also that we acknowledge that uh, this is not a, this is dynamic, that, you know, that, yeah. that you can't just approve, you know, a uh, GPTX that day and then not let any further inputs be incorporated. So I'm, I do hope that we'll we'll figure this out. Regulatory bodies throughout the world tend to be very conservative and they, they are aware of the power and they are more afraid of it. We have to come up with the right balance and we haven't gotten there yet. That's
1: right. I've heard that uh, people argue that it, it actually comes back to the Hippocratic Oath that the do no harm is has has sort of created the environment such that we're so afraid of harm, whereas if if the Hippocratic oath could have been more like do good, <laughs> you know yeah, that it, it yeah. was actually more it's more suited for our modern you know modern times and modern medicine, and now we're sort of in this place where we're r- really stuck um, because yeah, and it's uh, so I, I do the overall I think position of like the the net benefit to the patient is the correct one. Um, but you know, it just seems to—we uh, seem to over-anchor on the this like v- large fear of any risk whatsoever. Whereas the truth is that lots of human-delivered services are associated. I mean, they are all associated with risk because we are humans, and humans are human.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, there is a lot of unintended harm that's done in the human-to-human connects. And so, if we were to come up with a new oath, it would be maximize net benefit, you know, and yes. um, because you're get, fixating on harm is what holds us back. Uh, there is no such thing as a, a, a any intervention, medication, device, diagnostic test that's a hundred percent foolproof. So, uh, acknowledging that, so that we don't we're not stymied and don't hold back from the progress that lies ahead that's really important
1: i, I totally agree and it you know it, it's a balanced approach it's the it's the only way to move forward with yeah with actual balance rather than polarization because um, i feel you know i think when you're involved in creating something that is relatively new or uses new technology if there is sort of one place where it doesn't work in this completely optimized way it's sort of held up as aha, you see there you go evidence yeah. of harm <laughs> um, and exactly. and it's just so overall it's so damaging when you look at the the overall sort of picture and the overall potential and actually you know actual realized benefit as well coming to the end we always ask everybody that we interview as well this one question that if, if you could change anything in the way that healthcare is delivered today what would it be and i'm going to suggest that you would probably say Everything, but or a lot of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But if you actually choose uh, the number
0: one, <laughs> it depends on what time frame you're asking. Oh, so like, brilliant, right I now, Break I, for I would say, you know, just liberate the damn keyboards and get the gift of time for patients and the patient doctor relationship to be restored. But if you say, what do I want in five years? I want to get rid of hospital rooms you know, and only hospitals become, you know, the place where you ICU and emergency rooms, operating rooms, but the regular hospital room has become obsolete in the next five to 10 years because we have the ability to, to do that and we should be doing it. So, you know, it's kind of it, right now there's like an immediate thing I'd want to see, which is let's get gift of time. Let's get patient autonomy going uh, that, you know, the the ability for doctorless screening of all the common conditions that are not life-threatening uh skin lesions and cancer and urinary tract infections and ear infections and children and the list goes on and on let's get this stuff where and and you know obviously that extends to mental health as well to support people but um i do think it's you know the power uh, and their willingness to, to validate things uh, as we get more and more bold and, and capable over time. They, so, the answer to the question for me is it's just a matter of time.
1: I love that dimension of time, that is incredible. I, 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 I completely agree with you as well. We often talk about how the, the sort of the architecture of clinical services and, and therapy in general actually accidentally, not intentionally, but often inadvertently undermines the patient's ability to engage in a therapeutic process. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for your time and joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you, Alison. It's great to be with you.